It's wonderful to see all of you here tonight. How many of you would like to see STEM pods featuring the new level three STEM 10 course? Well, it's not, okay, calm down. It's not released yet, so you can't see it. But it's coming very soon. We're excited about that, and that's one of many things we're gonna see at the uh, ASAC 2020 in June, which we're pretty excited about. It's our com annual conference for school administrators. It's coming up in June, so keep watching for those announcements because it's coming real soon. But now it's time for the Technology Spotlight with Dr. John. We're going to talk about machine learning. Now, what is that? Some of us imagine a robot doing a cellus, you know, machine <laughs> learning. That's not quite what it is. <laughs> We're going to dig into that. We'll be looking at that in just a minute. Uh, but, you know, AI, machine learning, there's been this competition between people and the artificial intelligence, right? You know, at first they beat us in chess, then they beat us in Go. Well, how about inventing their own antibiotic? Well, if you look at this, you might recognize this invention. Ugh. This is how penicillin was discovered. Remember how a sample got contaminated and the mold grew and it killed the bacteria, the special molecule, the penicillin, that was discovered from that, and that's been a really wonderful thing. Well, we've in discovered quite a few other antibiotics over the years, and uh, one of the problems that we've had is that as people use them a lot, the bacteria start to figure out ways to you know, survive, and they become antibiotic resistant. And so we need new antibiotics really, really bad. Well, this is where some researchers at MIT used machine learning and AI to actually teach a computer how to look for antibiotics, and they found one. And guess what they named it? They named it Hallison, after Hal, if you've ever seen 2001 Space Odyssey, remember? <laughs> you know, I'm sorry, Dave, I'm afraid I can't do that. That's my best impersonation. <laughs> you have to be old enough, okay? <laughs> uh, but anyway, uh, I don't know why they named it that. <laughs> but uh, it's pretty amazing that they could do that. And you start to wonder now, how powerful is this AI? Is it going to you know, take over the world or something? Well, it's at least going to defeat the bacteria, right, with antibiotics. <laughs> uh, but no, actually, machine learning and artificial intelligence, as we describe it, and as we usually use that term, those terms, means more of a tool. It's more like a really fancy hammer that can do things really, really well, certain things. And when you realize that, it's not quite so scary. Uh, let's take a look at kind of how this works, because it's not a robot doing a cellus or reading a book or something like that, but uh, it is actually having the computer learn. So if you look at this diagram, you can see how the circles uh, are a grid that does the actual learning, and each one of those is a node. And let's say we were trying to tell if a picture was a dog or a cat, okay? So we convert that picture and those pixels in the picture into numbers and we feed them into this machine learning algorithm and the different nodes do different operations on the inputs and then those inputs propagate through and finally we get an output. And the output, you know, is hopefully dog if we're testing for the dog. But a lot of times, we run it through and the output's wrong. And then we use some pretty neat math to figure backwards where the problem might be and we tweak the algorithm. So next time, when we put the picture through, we get doc. Now, it's pretty simple, right? It sounds, it sounds pretty simple. But it's not like a person where I show you a picture of a cat and a dog and the next time, you'll probably get it right. No, you need a lot of data. So you have to have thousands of images of what a dog looks like and what a dog does not look like, and you feed it through the algorithm, and eventually it's trained. And so that's what we mean by machine learning. And then once it's trained, we can use it to actually look at an image that it's never seen before, and hopefully it gets the right answer, okay? So now I think you're hopefully starting to get an idea of what machine learning is, and see how that's a tool. 
they used that same technique to learn how to play Go. They had all these uh, neural networks that they fed the data into different ways you can play in things. And uh, it's really, really powerful at playing Go. That's all they trained it for. <laughs> and one of the big challenges is how do we train these uh, algorithms to be able to do more, to have more context, to understand more. You know how a lot of devices are really good at hearing what we say and answering us, you know, our personal assistants and things? Those used machine learning, listening to different audio recordings of people talking and learning what those people were saying. It's pretty amazing, and it's all around us. Well, these researchers at MIT took some data about different types of molecules. They had thousands of different uh, compounds in their database, and about half of them were actually antibiotics that are known. Some of them natural, some of them as uh, FDA-approved drugs and stuff like that. And they fed that all in and taught their algorithm how to recognize a molecule that would kill E. coli, which is a dangerous bacteria, and, um, or at least a really common bacteria, right? And so then they uh, took another database of other molecules that it had never seen before and fed it through. Now, what about these? What do you think? And there were several, in fact, about 100 that it thought, maybe this is an antibiotic too. And so then, instead of doing the test on you know, thousands of chemicals, they only had this little handful to do a test on, the, the very most likely ones. And that's how they found Hallison. In fact, Hallison was already a drug that was being investigated as a treatment for diabetes. <clears throat> so in order to uh, get that FDA approved, there's a lot smaller hurdle because they've, they've already started the tests in people. Remember, to find a good antibiotic, it has to kill bacteria, and it has to not kill people, right? <laughs> An important criteria. And so uh, there are a lot of things that will kill bacteria that will kill a lot more than bacteria, and so finding that. And then there's one other thing. The third important feature is it needs to be absorbed correctly. And uh, depending on what you want, the bacteria, where the bacteria is you want to kill, that means different things. Maybe you just want to kill it in your digestive tract. Then you don't want it to get absorbed into the blood. Uh, but maybe it's an infection on uh, your arm or something, then it probably needs to get into your blood, doesn't it? So these are the factors that they're going through when they're doing uh, this analysis. If you look at this diagram, this kind of shows the process th that they went through. It's a little bit hairy to follow, but uh, you can see that really fancy graphic up in the left. That's their algorithm training that they did. And they used deep learning. That's another name for this machine learning with the neural networks we were talking about. And they took, instead of having you know, 10 to the, what is that, 8, 10 to the 8 possibilities, they limited it all the way down to a handful that they could actually test themselves. And then after they found it, they actually tested some samples. And here's an example of you know, the little Petri dishes, and they put the bacteria in the different samples, and they can see how when they put in the halicillin that it killed the bacteria, and the bacteria didn't grow. Well, you can see the bacteria growing in those other control samples. And then once they've proven that it actually is an antibiotic, then they tried it in mice, and it didn't kill the mice, which is good, and it killed the bacteria. So the next step for this is to take it on to uh, trials in actual people and see that it works as well there, just like they saw in their other tests. This is pretty neat stuff, isn't it? And this is just the beginning. Really, the neat thing about machine learning is it's limited by your imagination. If you can get a data set of information to teach the computer, you don't want this, but you want that, that's a good enough data set, and feed that into the computer with the right algorithms, then that computer is going to be able to recognize those things. And that's uh, what we're talking about with machine learning and artificial intelligence. And uh, it's not going to take over the world unless you're talking about, you know, the smart assistants, the, the features in the smart assistants, right? Uh, so I think this is really exciting technology. And there are a lot of neat ways that it's yet to be used. Well, that's all the tech we have the time for. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> Don't mind me. Okay.
<laughs> I'm just standing in here. Actually, I, I think you're going to introduce Tobias, right? Right. Well, did you know the last week we had some students write in complaining about Tobias? Oh. Yeah. They wanted to know why he didn't have a video intro when everybody else did. You see John's <laughs> video intro. <laughs> I have a video intro, but mm -hmm. Tobias didn't have one. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and so I just thought we ought to explain the reason he doesn't have one is because he makes them. <laughs> and if he made his own intro, what kind of a guy would he be, right? <laughs> and so I told him, you know, Tobias, uh, they want to know why you don't have an intro. And now we've got one. <laughs> Which is okay. I mean, he, he does a great job. He should have an intro, shouldn't he? Mm -hmm. But what I don't understand is why does he get the best intro? <laughs> so anyway, when you introduce him, watch out because he now has a video okay. intro. Okay. <laughs> All right. <laughs> yeah. There you go. All right. Well, it's time for the... It's time for Breakthroughs in Science with Tobias with video intro. Yeah, I was like watching that intro. You're like, wow, wow, wow. Who's that? <laughs> All right. Uh, well, I'm really excited tonight because we're talking about something pretty awesome, and that is light. We're talking about light, and you know, you know, that brings up a question: How many programmers does it take to change a light bulb? <laughs> None. It's a hardware issue. Okay. So. <laughs> no, no. Uh, but yeah, no. It, we really are talking about hardware tonight. We're talking about. The substance, we're talking about LEDs, which is the new awesome light. And, you know, as, as we go through this, we're going to find that chemistry plays a really important role in the creation of LEDs and in an understanding LEDs. So, you know, you, you learn all about hardware, electronics and such, but things like chemistry can really be a game changer for being able to take things to a next level. Um, so to understand and appreciate kind of the, the breakthrough that we're going to talk about at the end. We're going to do a quick run-through of a couple things, and one of them is co covalent bonds. And I have notes <laughs> in case I need them. <clears throat> okay. Well, a lot of atoms, okay, like eight electrons in their outer shell, okay? And there's some exceptions, but atoms like to have eight electrons, okay? And we're going to talk about it with that assumption. So if you take, for example, fluorine, Fluorine is an atom that has seven electrons. It's almost there. It's almost to that perfect state, and it needs one more. That's all it needs. So a fluorine, if it sees another fluorine, they can team up and come together and make a deal because I need one more, you need one more. Let's share one together. And so if two fluorines come together, they can bond into their covalent bond and they share one of their electrons, and now both of them feel like they have eight, so it's good, okay? So that's fluorine. Now, what about something like silicon? Now, silicon has four electrons. Oh, it's a much tougher deal. You know, it's not just one electron. It needs four electrons. Well, silicon does a similar thing, only it needs more than one silicon friend. It needs four, because it needs four more electrons. So I need an electron from you. You come over here, you come over here, you come up here, and you come over here. So we get a structure kind of like this, okay? So silicon, it's getting, it's a, only that one in the middle is happy here, uh, got, got the eight, okay? But if you start building this out, you can imagine more silicon coming in, and you start to get all of the silicon and all those guys getting connected. It's, it's getting stable, and they have their eight electrons, okay? Now, that's going to be important as we go forward because what if we have that, that you could call it the wall or the sheet of silicon, okay, and we change some of the silicon out for another kind of um, atom, another element. So, if, for example, if we do phosphorus. So phosphorus has one more 
electron than silicon does. So if we take this silicon out, we took four out, and we put a phosphorus in with an extra. Now it's connected to the others, but there's an extra one. And we do it over here, and we do it over here. We do it in several places. Now we have electrons moving around that don't really have an assigned place, so they can move around, okay? So we're going to call that on the semiconductor material we've made, we're going to call it n-type, n for negative, because those free electrons, we have the negative charge. So what if we do the opposite thing? And we got the silicon. Instead of switching it out for one with more electrons, what if we switched out some of the silicon for something with less, like boron? So now, when we switched it out, there's a missing electron there. We switched this one out, there's a missing one there. We're getting holes where there were electrons. And it looks like those holes are moving around because the electrons that are in place jump into that hole. Now there's a hole there, and it kind of moves around. So we've got our moving electrons freely over here in the n-type, and then this other semiconductor we call a p-type semiconductor for positive. And we have these holes, okay? So we have these two semiconductors, and then we put them beside each other, okay? And what they call this is the, the p-n junction. And this is where they come together, and some of the electrons, those free-moving electrons, right on the p-n uh, junction, jump over to some of the holes that are right on the p-n junction on the other side. And there it creates um, basically an electric field in the middle that stops the rest of them from, from moving from one to the other until we connect a battery. So if we connect a battery and we have it turned the correct way, so the positive is going to the, the P semiconductor and the negative is going to the N semiconductor, something magical happens. And what it does is more free electrons start coming in on the N-type semiconductor and more positive holes start coming in on the P-type semiconductor. Why is this a big deal? Well, now the electrons start getting more powerful than that middle point, the PN junction, and they start jumping over to those holes. Whee! Down the hole they go. Well, <laughs> when they do that, something magical happens. They have to give up some energy as they go into that hole. And they give it up as a photon or a particle of light. So they shed light as they go into those holes. And there's more of them going, and they're giving off light. And so now we have a light-emitting diode. But we can't see it because the frequency at which those photons are coming off are too slow, too low for the human eye. It's below red. Red's the lowest of our visible light spectrum that we can see. So they're actually infrared. We can't see them. And for some time, this is what we could do for LEDs. We could make invisible light. No, it's there. <laughs> um, so that was when uh, the, the person that we're going to talk about, uh, Nick Hongyonyak, comes onto the scene in the 1950s, 1960s, and he starts working for GM. <laughs> GM. Oh, GE. <laughs> um, no, GE, and boy, is that special, especially with light, because think about it. General Electric is, if you go back, this is really where Thomas Edison launched the light bulb and getting electricity everywhere. So he's working at GM, and there's a crew working on... Oh, my goodness. <laughs> We're going to start, yeah, punishments up here. Yeah, I've been thrown off. Um, at GE, and there are different teams working on how can we make an LED that we can see, because this would be huge if we could do it. Now, different teams were working on, you remember our, our an example, we had silicon, okay, and it was dope. That's where we changed some of the, the pieces out with different things like phosphorus and boron, but they were looking at other ones. Gallium, one team was working on a substance of gallium. Another one was working um, with phosphide and arsenide. Those were the different teams. And Nick's idea was, what if we combined them? And he was immediately told and informed that if you knew your chemistry better, you would know that cannot work. And most of the people believed that if you tried to combine these, the material would fall apart. You, you just could, it wouldn't work. And yet he was very determined that this is what he was going to do and he started working on a project to do that. And in 1962, he showed, he presented an LED that used all of those to make a red light. So he got it up into the spectrum in the red. And if, if you remember, red LEDs was kind of the thing. If, if it was an LED, it was red. That was what we knew how to make. And eventually, we got 
it to the point where we were able to make it so those electrons, again, they're jumping over into those holes, make it so that they had more energy to give off as they jumped over into those holes. And if the more energy, the brighter, or well, the different color. You go all the way up, you get to the blue, the violets. That's why blue was really, really hard, because it took a lot more energy. And eventually, someone else would figure out to use gallium nitride to make blue. And when they got all the colors, then they could make white. So from something that was invisible all the way to something that we could get a whole spectrum, all the colors. I mean, we know now we can get any LED. We kind of take it. It's easy to take for granted. Um, I, and it's amazing to me how bright these are. So I've got this is kind of it's, it's not as, you know, the poetic, you know, I had an idea. I <laughs> um, but if you look at this, this is one of those simple little lights in your closet. You know, I can't find my underwear. There it is. Um, look at this picture showing, if I turn the exposure way down of this light, you can see the actual light emitting diodes. Look how tiny they are. And they're able to give off that much light. Pretty amazing that such a small thing can, and what's the big deal? Efficiency. These are so much more efficient. And when a, when a light bulb's giving off a lot of heat, that's energy that's not being put into the light. So the efficiency and how well and how long these last is groundbreaking. And when um, Nick actually invented this, he made two predictions. He, one prediction was, we're going to have a white LED someday, <laughs> and they're going to be the number one way to light things. And that was pretty amazing to try and imagine at the time. But boy, is it coming true now. So, And it all came back to the chemistry behind this technology. So as you're studying your chemistry, just remember, the hotter you study, the brighter your future might be. So. <laughs> all right. And now, introducing Roger Billings. see that one more time. <laughs> you know, I think uh, getting an intro, video intro for Tobias was not good. <laughs> it seemed like maybe he was kind of boron tonight. <laughs> I mean, I didn't, I didn't mean boron. I mean, you know, it was great. I liked your intro. Um, do you want to trade? <laughs> I've got a, just a second, I got a message. should have turned off my phone. <laughs> oh, you guys. So someone wants to know, why doesn't Peugeot get an intro? <laughs> she doesn't need one. <laughs> no? <laughs> She's kind of like the same. Tobias, scientist. why doesn't uh, Peugeot get an intro? <laughs> she doesn't need one. <laughs> Well, well, that's a good answer. Well, how many of you think she ought to have an intro? No. If anyone thinks that Peugeot should have an intro, send us a message, okay? Oh dear. Oh dear. Well, they I, like the Tobias one. Yeah. Well, wait, wait till they see the new Peugeot intro. I'm scared now. We decided we should have one. Now, I don't have all the fancy editing tools Tobias does, so I hope you're not expecting too much. But would you like to have your very own intro? Would you do? Yes. Well. <laughs> <laughs> I do? What makes you think it was me? <laughs> okay, let's, let's see this, okay? This is the Peugeot intro. <laughs> no. <laughs> Whoa! Tonight, will be remembered. <laughs> yes, uh, yes yeah. it will. I will not forget it. <laughs> Can we see that one more time? <laughs> I like that little jiggle part. Yeah. And, and did you see the UFO? 
<laughs> yeah. I did you notice that? No, I did after a minute. Yeah. Wow. wow. <laughs> this is an exciting night, funny. isn't it? Yeah, you didn't. No, did you? I didn't. That was, that was pretty good. Well, <laughs> I'd like to welcome all of you here tonight, and I really appreciate Tobias telling us about LEDs. And it is a little bit complicated to understand if you haven't taken chemistry. And that's why you should all take chemistry. But LEDs are amazing, and they are really changing our world, and they're changing it fast. I remember uh, when the red LEDs, no, actually, I don't think I was around back then. <laughs> Tobias remembers when the red ones come out. <laughs> do you really remember that? Well, okay, he doesn't, but I do. And they were really neat. But I remember when I saw the red one, I wanted a blue one. And then out came green, and out came amber or orange, and finally we got blues. And blues are really beautiful. The blue around this table is LEDs. Can you see that little thing lighting up? It's pretty cool. I love blue, and I love, love blue LEDs. A um, couple things that I'd like to just add to that story. Remember when we showed the uh, the underground gardens, um, subterranean gardens that, that we're experimenting with as part of our sustainable society program, those gardens are possible because of LEDs. And he said LEDs are more efficient, and that's why the inventor predicted someday that would be the main way we light things. And when you say more efficient, that means a little bit of electricity gives a lot more light. And they're a lot more efficient. Edison invented a filament that gets hot and glows. That's a way of producing light, and that started it off. But LEDs give out much more light for a, a very tiny, small amount of electricity. And that's why it's now conceivable to think we could grow plants indoors with artificial lighting. We could maybe do it before, but the lights took a lot of power to run. And I remember I started trying to grow indoor uh, tomatoes years ago. And I had a big 1,000-watt metal halide bulb that put out a lot of heat. It was 1,000 watts, which is a lot. And we grew some tomatoes and thinking, wow. And the tomato was worth about 10 times the way you can buy them at the grocery store for. They, they tasted good but uh, wasn't feasible. Now with LED lights, that really is something that can happen and they're, they're changing a lot of things. Do you realize that you're sitting there at this very minute illuminated by LED lights? Yes, I do. Look at these. So what do you think about that? I think it's pretty neat. Really, is that what you were thinking? Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> I'm still getting over that intro. <laughs> Do you want to see it again? No, I don't. <laughs> we see it one more time. Oh, man. Oh, man, that's great. <laughs> okay, well, it's so good to have my, that now. Is that my spaceship because I'm an alien? I think ratings are going to go up. <laughs> yeah, I'm pretty sure. Okay. Maybe we could play again at the end, too. No, we're okay. good. <laughs> we're good. <laughs> Just in case. But tonight, we, we have to talk about a couple things. I, I need to bring Joshua up here because he wants to tell us about the cells world, right? <laughs> Turns out that Joseph put in this big thing for his conference. Yeah, but, uh, that's true. Joshua, oh, would you that. like to come up and tell us when the cells world is and get us all excited? Yeah. Here he comes. Let's hear it. We have a video intro for him. No, we don't have one. Because, you know, we'll, we'll get one. Okay? okay. Here we go. Acellus World is coming up Memorial Day weekend, so it's right around the corner. And one of the big highlight events is our annual science fair. So if you haven't looked it up yet, if you go to acellus.com, there's information on the Acellus Science Fair and how you can enter, and it's an entry where you submit a video online, so you don't have to come to Kansas City to enter in the contest, 
and then at Acellus World, we will announce the winners of the science fair. So there are winners in different age groups. Uh, we're going to have some really awesome prizes. For example, the uh, Dr. Hydrogen bottles will be one of the prizes. And then there are some other uh, online events that we are getting ready to announce that you'll be able to participate in online. So stay tuned on the website as we'll be posting more information. And then another big highlight of the event on Memorial Day will be our graduation ceremony. So if you're getting ready to graduate or if you've recently graduated, uh, this is something that you could participate in and walk the line and get your diploma. So we're really excited to do that now for our second year. Walk the line. Walk the line. Walk the line. <laughs> walk the there side. they are. Look at it. Whoa. Walking the line. That's good. All right. So when is Memorial Day? It is. Stump team. <laughs> it's in May. It's in May. I think May 20th. In 20. May. So we're talking about March in a minute, and then April, and then May. So it's coming up, right? And remember, we're going to bring this out through the miracle of the internet so that people can participate, okay? All right. Uh, I've got a report this week from uh, uh, some of our students that are in the same family, and they live over in South Africa. And they... Uh, are kind of out of sync on time. They're on different time zone than Missouri. And so they actually watch our, mm -hmm. uh, our meetings on Saturday afternoon. And that's great. It's fun. It is fun. Yeah, so straighten up, we're on Africa. They're watching Africa. <laughs> <laughs> they like my intro, by the way, but they think I need a better one. I need to. <laughs> you're, you're not satisfied? Uh-uh. <laughs> what could we do to plus it? Oh, boy. <laughs> <laughs> Stay tuned. Maybe not a bobble. <laughs> <laughs> I like that. <laughs> That's really a good point. Okay, but we, we need to get serious for a minute because the science fair is coming, is coming, is coming. And I want to go back and talk a little bit about the science fair because it can really have an impact on your whole career, and it really did mine. Uh, I had a wonderful, in fact, I still have a wonderful uncle, my father's baby brother, that taught me that I should play the French horn. Anyway. Because he said that if you play the French horn well, you can get a scholarship at any university you want to go to. And so I was going home from school, and I didn't have the French horn. And they're, they're heavy, especially when you're going to junior high on a bicycle. And he says, that guy that's going to steal the scholarship for you took his French horn home tonight to practice. So I practiced and practiced and practiced to be able to play the French horn well enough to get a scholarship. And then I won one at the science fair, which was really neat. And I... With the French horn? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you give them an intro, and then they get like this. <laughs> Don't they? So anyway, I just want to say, I, I actually believe that I could have gotten a French Horn scholarship uh, because I worked very, very hard. And when I did get old enough to be in the university, um, I had the Science for Scholarship, but I still wanted to see how I'd do on the French Horn. So I registered for the Symphonic Orchestra. And in the orchestra, they have eight French horns, which is a lot. And only one of them gets to be the solo horn. He gets to play all the neat stuff. And the other guys, they get the not-so-interesting parts, you know, the oom-bop, oom-bop, and stuff. <laughs> so uh, a French horn is a wonderful way to get a scholarship. There are a lot of other ways that you can, too. You need to really excel in something. Mm -hmm. Another great way to get a scholarship is to excel in a cellist because students that are graduating from Sells Academy with a good GPA are getting scholarships. And that's kind of a neat thing too. But then there's the science fair way. And I got into the science fair not to get a scholarship, 
I got into it because I was really, really interested in it. And I want to go back in a little bit of that story tonight uh, because some of you are needing a little booster shot on getting interested in the science fair. Okay? And I just got a message uh, from one of the students that indicated to me that right now they're struggling in their assaults classes and they're a little bit discouraged. They watch the video, they don't get it, and they're discouraged. Um, I, I don't like anybody to not get it. I mean, that's not the idea of a cellist. The idea of a cellist is you should get it. And when someone's not getting it, I get concerned. But uh, very, very often, when someone is in a class and they're really, really not getting it, they haven't really mastered the material from the class before that they need. And quite often, when we get into a course that you're more ready for and let you master the material and then get you back in the class you're in, you do better. If anybody's been placed in a class that's a little bit too advanced, let's back up because you won't really learn anything that way. So go back, get a class on your level, get through being discouraged, get going forward, and then go back into the more advanced classes and you do really well. Something I'd highly recommend. But on the science fair, uh, one of my favorite stories is about, and it's a very, very true story. I don't remember if Tobias was there or not, but I was, <laughs> <clears throat> I was in a science class in middle school. And I had a wonderful, funny, clever, amazing science teacher named Mr. Mitchell. And one day he came to science class with this apparatus and he said he was going to split water. Split water. And he hooked this equipment up, put water into it, hooked it up to a battery, and bubbles started coming out of these two little pieces of metal down on the bottom. Turned out the metal was platinum. I didn't know that at the time. But bubbles came out over on this side and went up and got caught, and bubbles came out on this side. Turns out on one side, there was twice as many bubbles as there was on the other. The side with more bubbles, bigger bubbles, was hydrogen. The side with fewer bubbles was oxygen. Water is made up of hydrogen and oxygen that have joined together, which as Tobias would have said in his presentation means they're sharing electrons. That's what a molecule is. It's when atoms of different elements come together and they share electrons and form a little family, which in chemistry we call molecules, okay? So the electricity was pulling the molecule apart, and, and when you pull hydrogen and oxygen apart, they both turn back into gases. And so the hydrogen bubbled up here, and the oxygen bubbled up here, and he got all this hydrogen, and he put a little balloon on the apparatus, and he blew up a balloon tied a little string on it, dipped it in some alcohol so it would burn, lit the fuse, and when he let go, hydrogen's such a light gas, it's lighter than helium, went zooming up the ceiling, and the fire climbed the stream, ignited the balloon, and boom, there was an explosion. And I mean, right in school, they were just like, whoa. And then he wrote on the board that that explosion was water being created that the hydrogen was burning by combining with oxygen, forming new molecules, and giving off energy. And to think that you could make fire with water being made, it just went right into my brain. <laughs> right through and out, the, no, no, right in. And stayed. Oh yeah, it stayed there. And so I got all these ideas, I thought, wow, you could use hydrogen to run an engine because you burn gasoline in an engine, why not burn hydrogen? And I got a lot of other ideas, and I went home, and I wrote a big paper up and brought it to my science teacher, and he thought it was pretty neat. And all of a sudden, I decided I wanted to run a car on hydrogen. So what do you do? You're pretty young. I couldn't drive yet, and I wanted to be able to have a hydrogen car by the time I drove. And so I, uh, I needed an engine to research on. Science is always confronted with impossible challenges. Where do I get an engine? 
Where do I get it? Where do I get it? I didn't have a lot of money, but my neighbor had a big lawn. <laughs> and so I got this idea. He had this old crummy lawnmower. And so I said, I'll tell you what, I will mow your lawn all summer if at the end of the summer I can have the lawnmower. Won't I have to pay you? No, I'll just do it. And so I did. And I got the lawnmower at the end of the summer, and right away I tore it off. I tore the engine off the lawnmower, and talked to my wonderful mother, devo devotee of science, <laughs> into purchasing a tank full of hydrogen at the welding shop. And I hooked it up somehow to the lawnmower engine, and it didn't work. Turned it on. The, the way you start this particular motor is you wrap a rope around it. You ever seen that kind of an engine? You wrap a rope around it, and then you pull the rope real hard, and it's supposed to start. Well, when I put my hydrogen up to it, it would just pop and backfire and explode. It wouldn't run. And I tried and tried, and finally I realized if this is going to be a hydrogen engine for the science fair, it's not going to get done in time because I couldn't make it run. It was almost time for the science fair. What do I do? What do I do? What do I do? And then I got an idea. I'll do something else. And so I got this great idea. I would grow plants using ultrasonic waves. And I've talked about that another time. Tonight I want to show you a picture, though, of my first science fair project. This is, oh, there he is. What <laughs> a good-looking young man. <clears throat> in front of, of me, in this picture, is an ultrasound machine. And you see I've got the handle there. The handle puts out sound that is such a high frequency you can't hear it. But this machine was made for people that had sore muscles. And the sound waves won't go through air, they only go through water. And so I had the tank there full of water and I put it underneath there. And this machine was made to um, actually treat or massage sore muscles of people that had been in injuries. And uh, I'm actually doing this wonderful experiment at my local hospital. I went to the hospital, they had a machine, and I asked them if I could use it to treat my seeds. And I put the seeds under the water and treated them with this ultrasonic wave. Now, the seeds were beans. You know, just red beans. I liked it better with them. Beans, there we go. Good. So I'm controlling this. It's like trying to control Peugeot. Anyway, <clears throat> so I treated the beans with these ultrasonic waves. Whoop, there he went. He's gone now. Oh, he's back. Okay, that's him. And what I wanted to see is what would those ultrasonic waves do to the seeds? And I actually had this idea, maybe I could use ultrasonic waves to grow plants or something. I didn't quite have it all figured out when I started. But then I found out that the beans that were treated with the ultrasound started to grow much faster than beans that I just put water on. It woke them up, it made them burst back to life. And so I put this together in a science fair project, how to germinate seeds with ultrasonic waves. I was in the 10th grade and I won first place at the local science fair, which is kind of lucky. That's pretty impressive. Yeah. And because of that award, I also won what they call the Navy Science Cruise. Uh -huh. So I got to go down to Point Magoo in California, and it really was a, a big part of getting me started in my, my career in science. But the next year, I got my old engine out again, wrapped the rope around, and tried different ways to get that engine to run on hydrogen. And everything I tried didn't work. And so I had to panic again panic? and switch projects, yes. <laughs> this time, though, I had an idea that I thought would be really revolutionary. 
I had become very interested in lasers. Mm. Lasers were kind of a new technology then. They're still. They're kind of far. They're not as <laughs> new today, but that was only because that was a few years ago. <laughs> but lasers were very, very neat, and they could put out a beam of light that could be focused down to a very fine point. Today we can use lasers to cut holes in metal and to etch things, and I just really, really like lasers. We have laser pointers, but we have big, powerful lasers that do all sorts of things. Well, I had an idea about a laser. Um, to understand my idea, and I'd read a lot about lasers. I think there was a guy named Towns that had invented the laser. And I tried to understand what made them work. Uh, a laser is a kind of light, except instead of just coming out like a light bulb or like even an LED now, a laser shoots the light out in a very straight beam. And scientists call the beam that comes out of a laser monochromatic and coherent. Monochromatic means all of the light is exactly the same color. And coherent means all the waves are right in sync together. And the fact that it's monochromatic and coherent is the reason that you can focus it down to a very, very narrow point. And that's how they're able to cut things. And it's kind of interesting. Now, one of the technologies that I came to understand as I read about this that still fascinates me, even today, is a phenomena that makes lasers possible. And this gets into some quantum physics and things that are still kind of a little bit on the cutting edge of science. But could I use one of your fingers? Which one do you want? Best one. My <laughs> best one? Choose. Well, do you have any clean ones? <laughs> oh, okay, come on, <laughs> please. Guys, when you're doing science projects, don't ever ask that. Okay, just put your hand down here like this and just put this finger up. Hmm. Does this finger have a name? Thumbelina. Okay. <laughs> so let's just pretend that that is a molecule, like the ones Tobias was talking about. Only in this example, we're going to make it be a molecule of gas. The difference between a solid, like this table, and a gas is that a gas just floats around. You're doing good, <laughs> wow. by the way. You're just doing good. I am. All right, so like this is a gas molecule <laughs> floating around. Right now, though, we'll just let it rest there. Okay. Good. All right. So what if we could do something to get her excited? I mean, to get the oh, molecule wow. <laughs> excited. Okay. If we had some big, high-power source of energy, and we could put it on that atom, the electrons that are going around it... The molecule atom? This is an atom oh, okay. right here. <laughs> Would someone else like to help me? <laughs> no. No, this is an atom. An okay. atom. Okay. There's an atom. There okay. he is. It's got electrons going around. Okay. And I'm going to excite it with some big source of energy. I'm going to tell you about it in a minute. Big source of energy. The electron gets so excited, it starts going in a big orbit. Okay. <sighs> I can see it. And he's going fast. <laughs> and it's a big orbit because it's going fast. You know those little balls on a, on a rubber band and you spin them mm -hmm. and they make a circle about this big and then you spin it faster and the circle gets bigger and bigger? It's like that. The more energy, the faster it's going, the bigger the circle. And so you use this energy to pump up the orbit of the electron. It's really, really going. And then, sometime later, the electron says, what am I doing? This is a crazy big circle. I'm going back to normal. So it goes back down to its normal orbit. But just like the LEDs Tobias was talking to us about, it has to get rid of some of that energy it absorbed. And so it shoots it out. Mm -hmm. as a photon of light. That's the same principle, almost, as those LEDs. And you needed that to be able to create a laser. That's neat. So we excite it, the electron gets going big, and then the electron decays back to its normal orbit and gives off light. Now, how long does that take? Oh, 
less than a thousandth of a second. So it's not a real long delay. But it turns out, are you using that other hand? Could, could we use that for a minute? Thank you. Okay, we won't need the thumb. Just the fingers. Just kind of stick them up like that. Oh, that's good. I'll put it right there. Really? Okay, good, good, good. This is called doping. No, seriously. This is an impurity. Can you see that's not the same element as this? It's an impurity. And if you bring the impurity close to this atom that's excited, something happens, and the electron stays up in that fast orbit longer than normal. And that absolutely is crucial to be able to make a laser effect. Come on, just have good form. Good. All right, so just to start filling in the blanks for you guys that are taking chemistry. Have you figured out what this is yet? This is neon, like a neon light. Mm -hmm. And this is exactly how neon lights work. They put 15,000 volts in this tube full of neon and it glows orange. Okay, so here's neon, but it glows because it goes out to outer electrical and then it comes back fast. But if you put some helium gas in with it, then it stays in that outer orbital longer. Eventually, it caves back. Isn't that neat? It is very neat. You say, neat. what in the world does that help? I don't know, but I really like what you're doing. Oh, no, come on, come on, <laughs> cooperate, cooperate. So you're doing fine. I love learning science. This is how to be a good sport. Demonstration. <laughs> yes. <laughs> science You need to be emotionally social mature. Okay? What about social and emotional mature? That too. Oh, that too. Okay. okay. So let's get back to our experiment here. So now, because of this impurity of helium, <laughs> these electrons are staying excited longer. And then comes the magic phenomenon. And I don't know why this happens. I'm not sure who really knows. I'm sure probably Thomas, Dr. Thomas knows. <laughs> but for some reason, if a photon of light, a photon's the smallest little chunk of light there is, if a photon of light comes by this atom that's excited, just like I see it, it's a flyby. I can see that. Kind of like your UFO. If it comes by there for some reason, right when that's flying by, this electron says, oh, this would be a good time to decay. So it pops down and it gives off its light and it gives its light off right with the one that was flying by. Okay, that's Perfectly cool. in sync, that's going the same direction and the same frequency. That's neat. Mm -hmm. That is really neat. So if you're going to have a laser, come on, we need the laser back. Okay, <laughs> we're going to have a laser. We've got to have a lot of atoms here. Mm -hmm. And we have to have more of them excited than are not excited. And the big orbit of the electrons excited. Little orbit is unexcited. And when you have more of them excited than ones that aren't, scientists call that a population inversion. Yeah, it means a lot of them are excited. And then when a photon of light comes through, every time it goes by one of these atoms, it picks up another photon, and another photon, and another photon, and another photon. And it gets brighter and brighter and brighter. Some of these photons go shooting out through the glass tube that the gas is in, and, and it just glows. It looks like a neon light. But one of them is going to go straight down the tube to the end where you have a mirror. Mm -hmm. And it's gonna hit that mirror, which is carefully focused so that it comes right back past here to another mirror. And so the light starts going back and forth inside the mirror and it gets brighter and brighter. Other light is going out, but the beam we care about is hitting these mirrors and as it goes past all of these different excited atoms, it gets brighter and brighter and brighter, and pretty soon it gets so bright that it goes right through the mirror. 
Now it has wow. to be a special kind of mirror. It can't be like an aluminum mirror because it's not a good enough mirror and it'll destroy it. But if it's a mirror made with a dielectric coating, it goes through and out comes the beam out both ends. That's neat. Whew, that was pretty hard to talk about. Well, if you put those mirrors on the end then, you get a laser beam and you know, you can use a laser to send information like the internet over a fiber cable. If you push a laser beam into the end of a glass tube, it can go miles and miles and come out and follow the tube underground, up the building around, and it just stays inside the tube, comes out the other end. So you can send pictures, you can send the internet, you can send email, text. That's really neat. Yeah. So here I was in the 11th grade, and I was reading about these lasers and how they would send data over a glass fiber. And lo and behold, I got an idea. And if you look in this amazing photograph, <laughs> it hasn't is. been photoshopped yet. It doesn't need but it. But if you look there, uh, there's Joseph again. <laughs> or, or I think that's me. I think that's you. But can you look back behind me? There's that big electronic box there. Do you uh -huh. know what that is? That's oh. my ham radio transmitter. Okay. Yep. Why is it in the picture? And it's in the picture because I use my ham radio transmitter to make the energy to pump up that electron. That's how you got excited? Yeah, I got it excited. <laughs> I hooked up the transmitter to that tube to excite the gas. And you can see the glass tube there in front of me. And the glass tube is full of helium neon gas mixed to just the right level. And you can see the mirror on the end there that would send the beam back and forth. Well, in this particular case, this is a laser. And uh, as I would fire that up, it would shoot a beam out the end. And by the way, uh, this was 1965, spring of 65. And there weren't a lot of lasers around. They're kind of a new thing at the time. But interestingly, lasers have been invented. But I had another invention, and I, I think it's kind of a neat one. So can I tell you about it? Absolutely. Can you see it there? Isn't that cool? Uh -huh. So what the heck is that? And it's what I call a laser amplifier. So first I had to build a laser, and the picture right here is showing my laser because they had mirrors on the end. But here's the deal. You, you make a laser, you create a light beam, and you modulate it by putting data on. And how do you send data over a light beam? Well, you turn the light on and off fast. Mm. And if it goes off fast, that's a zero, and if it's on, it's a one. And so you can send these pulses and send an enormous amount of data over one fiber. The problem is building a laser system with the modulator and everything was very expensive. In that time, it was about $100,000. And every so many miles, you had to end a fiber, make a new laser, amplify the signal, and send it again. And those relay stations were very expensive, and we need them all over. Of course, no one could ever dream how the Internet goes everywhere now. But we knew we wanted to go to a lot of places. So I had this idea. If you made a tube without any mirrors and you, you brought the signal out the end of, let's say, a 10-mile of glass fiber, because the light had gone through all that glass, it had become very dim. You could barely see it coming out. And you need to send it 10 more miles. Well. If you're going to run a new laser, it's very expensive because you've got to have a whole big system to decode it and then remodulate it. So my idea was if you took that dim light and ran it into a laser without any mirrors, as it went through that laser, remember, get your thumb back here. Every time it went by an atom, it would get brighter again. And it would get brighter in perfect sync with the incoming signal. So it already have all the data. Oh. And so here you could make a $1,000 unit that would send a brand new powerful light beam back into the class. 
That's amazing. I call that a laser amplifier. Interestingly, the only problem was that I could not get it done by the science fair. Were you sad? I still am. Oh. <laughs> I still am. So I still went to the science fair, uh -huh. and I had my chart, my table, and I told them what I was going to do. And they'd look at, well, that's nice. I want a nice price, but it's just not as impressive when it doesn't work yet. But I didn't give up. I went home, and I finished it, and I entered it in the Westinghouse science talent search and it was working and I won and that was a really wow. nice award. that's so neat. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Did you know that Westinghouse is the guy that backed yeah, the other one. Tesla. Yeah, okay. Well, that's all right. Edison doesn't mind. Anyway, so coming back. But the interesting thing about this little science fair project is that it's being used today in an experiment at Los Alamos because they're trying to create nuclear fusion. Remember fusions where you push hydrogens together, make helium, and give off energy just like the sun. They're trying it in the tokamak, Princeton, where they're trying to contain it in a magnetic bottle. Well, Los Alamos are trying to do it with what they call the implosion method. And have all these laser beams hit this little sample mm -hmm. of fuel from every direction at the same time. And it is so powerful that it caused the sample to implode oh. with very, very high pressure and high temperature. And then they want it to react and make a little star for a second and get the energy out of it and then do another one another one. Well, the problem is all the light beams have to hit at exactly the same microsecond. And that's almost impossible to do from 15 or 20 different lasers. So what they do is they have one laser that they fire and then it goes through a prism beam separator and it goes through all these laser amplifiers just like my science fair project. Wow. Only they're like, they're longer, they're like 30 feet long and it amplifies wow. all those beams and then they have mirrors so they all come back and hit that sample at exactly the same time. Well, my point in telling this story is look how much an 11th grader learned because I got really interested in this. And, you know, I didn't know this. I had to learn it, learn it, learn it, learn it. And you have to learn a certain amount before you can make up a new idea. Mm -hmm. So I had to read, 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 read. And guess what? What? There was... Google did not work. Your internet was broken. <laughs> My internet was broken. There was no internet. And in fact, you need inventions like this to be able to make the internet, and there wasn't one. And so I had to go to the library and find books. Big books. I love Google. I love the internet. I don't know if I love Google yeah. so much. <laughs> I love the concept of a search engine. But, uh, you like the science is based Google's on. Okay, except um, anyway, that's a, another story. <laughs> I like people that are really interested in helping, not necessarily so hung up in making money. But anyway, so mm, can I show them one more picture? We're out of time. This is your thing. No, it isn't. It's overtime. Overtime, quick. Another picture. Quick, 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 quick. Show, show, show. Here it comes. Here it comes. Oh, there it is. And there is the world's first hydrogen engine. That is the very lawnmower engine that I mowed lawns to earn. And that's in my science fair exhibit that won the gold and silver medal at the International Science Fair my senior year. And I finally got it to run. And that's another story. And then I converted my father's Model A Ford. And that really, really launched a really exciting career for me. Science fairs are good things. They really pull you towards inventing, towards making exciting things. And once you get in that mode, then you're going to spend your whole life inventing new stuff. Do you know that in the last week, Dr. John and I 
have had a couple inventions that I think are revolutionary, don't you? And one of the biggest inventions has to do with our gold key security technology. And I'm, I'm pretty excited about it. I think it's going to be kind of revolutionary. And it's so fun to be able to invent new things that will change the world. And what it really amounts to for you guys that are kind of following gold key, remember we have hardware tokens and we have soft tokens and we have hardware vaults and we have soft vaults. Well now we've been able to give the same security to the soft vaults as the hard vaults. And I think it's like a major breakthrough. So what I'd like to do is just see that video no, one we're good. more time. We are. <laughs> Oh, man. <laughs> so, tonight, first place goes to Peugeot's oh, video. Yeah, there we go. And second place to Tobias. Thanks, guys. <laughs> we'll see you next week. Thank you all for joining us tonight. We'll see you next week. Have a great night.